Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if, we, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It was a few years ago, the um, Sunday after Easter, and someone came out and was speaking to me and said, Rob, we had a great Easter, didn't we? I said, yeah, it was really, it was a good Easter. And they said, well, I guess now we've we got to get back to reality. Now, on the one hand, I can really understand that statement. I mean, Easter is a special day. The flowers the children bring, the 
energy of the congregation, brass and the choir, all coming together in a glorious kind of fusion. We get into the upper altitudes and we know we can't stay there. We can remember what it looks like from up there, but we have to come down. Yeah, I, back to reality. But what, what if there's another hint in that, that, well, you know, Easter's just a few hours of blessed escape um, and to kind of escape from the harder facts of life. It, it's a springtime flight into the world of the crocus and the bunny rabbit and the robin. No, no. Friends, the only real and proper landscape for Easter is defeat and disappointment and death. You remember where we were last week on Palm Sunday and Luke started there and Jesus coming into town on that bandy-legged little beast and they called out, blessed is he, the king. And if Jesus was a king, he kinged it like no one else ever kinged it on this earth. Um, as, as Luke said in the sermon, it says right there in scripture, his kingdom was not of this world. Oh, there were moments that it seemed to find its place in the sun and the world was better for a few moments. But well, you know, we're afraid of something that different. I mean, we organize our world around knowing who's in and who's out and who's first and who's last. And Jesus' way turned all that upside down. And that did not sit very well with the people in charge. And so they trumped up some accusations and charges. And he was mocked and then beaten. Why? Best I can tell, it's because maybe he was less than what he, they wanted him to be or maybe he had become more than they wanted him to be. Anyway, they took that great life in him and they, they snapped it like a twig. That's the landscape for Easter, okay? You've heard me say as your preacher for a number of years that I've been just a bit bothered that the message of Easter has lost something because we've detached it from Good Friday. If you don't have Good Friday, you're not going to have Easter. You can't have resurrection as no one has died. We were here on Friday night, a good many of us. It was about 8 o'clock, and word came to us, and word came to Asheville that Jesus was dead. What do we say in the Apostles' Creed? Crucified, dead, buried. Ask the soldiers that were there. Dead? Yeah, yeah we were there. He was dead. Ask the disciples, well, to tell you the truth, we, we weren't very close. We were a little frightened by the whole thing, but yeah, we got word he was dead. A ask the women, yes, we went to the grave to prepare the body. He was dead. Go on and tell Pilate he wins again and uh, Rome is safe. Why did we think we could ever change anything? T tell Caiaphas, yeah, yeah, um, political expediency carries the day over the needs of the lost and the last. The people went to the polls. Barabbas, hey, by a landslide. This is a tragic story. This one who came of God, who came as love, remained love, and he was killed. Hey, some of you read the newspaper already this morning, and you quickly found out um, so often one of our days will look like Good Friday one. Look what happened in Sri Lanka this, earlier this morning. We live in a world in which 
Powerless love is often the victim of loveless power. As some of you, on your personal journey, you've run headlong this past year into dead ends and dead ways, and your your brightest hopes have um, been buried in some dark tomb of sorrow or grief. So you might ask, what does Easter have to do with any of that? Everything. Because Easter is the complete acknowledgement that you and I live in a world that often looks like a Good Friday world, where goodness gets mocked and truth gets stretched on a scaffold. But today we remember there's the rest of the story. Last week, Luke quoted from William Sloan Coffin. I'm going to take you back into that pulpit at Riverside to Coffin's pulpit. And there on one Easter message, this is what he said. By the light of Easter, we can dimly discern a yes, but kind of message. Yes, indifference and apathy and hatred kill, but eternal purposes and love never die. Not to God, not to us. And that's what brought us here this morning. A yes, but kind of message. Yes, it was Friday, and it felt for all the world like a lost campaign. It went to the polls, grabbed us by a landslide, but that was Friday, then there was Saturday. Then on Sunday, some of Jesus' followers came to the grave. And what did they find? Oh, just, just a couple, of two piles of grave clothes. When Mary got there, she didn't even notice the pile of clothes. She, she was so undone, all she could see is, my goodness, somebody has opened the tomb. They've taken the body of Jesus. She runs back to the disciples, and then they come running after her, Peter and John. They get there and see what she had seen. The body's not there. This doesn't make any sense to them. Then this is very intriguing to me. Both Peter and the beloved disciple John walk into the empty tomb, and this is what the gospel writer says. And John believed. On what basis? All we've got is that the body's not there and the pile of clothes. Some commentators have said, John, the gospel writer, wants us to hear this because this man came to believe in the way that we come to believe, without seeing evidence, without hearing a word from the risen Christ. Was there something in his experience of Jesus that, that hinted to him that this absence was not abandonment, but it was a higher expression of love and presence already? I don't know, that's intriguing to me. The rest of the story belongs to Mary. She's the one that heard the voice of Jesus and saw him. And then it's interesting. Do you catch John doesn't spend a lot of time at the empty tomb, walking all the way around, trying to show us pictures, because Jesus has outgrown the tomb. Um, the empty tomb's too small a focus for resurrection. His business is among the living. He wasn't there, raised. He came back. That's what brought us here today. I I, I hope you won't hear the Easter message this morning just as the message of our personal survival after death. It's larger than that. It's cosmic. The empty grave of Palestine is like the open mouth of God saying that this life that was in Jesus, the life we've been celebrating here during Lent, Jesus, the light, the door, the shepherd, the truth, the way, the life, the vine. This is vindicated once and for all. 
The empty grave of Palestine says you may delay those purposes, you may detour them, you may try to destroy them, but after you have done your worst to them, they stand, they stay. The vast, expansive, redeeming, unconditional love that was wrapped up in Christ Jesus, the I am. That wins, you see, that wins. That's, that's what got us here today. That's what filled this church here today. I know there are probably some people here this morning, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that aren't here this morning that would say, could you please prove this? Could you please prove this to me? People have asked me, what's it like to preach on Easter? It's, it's the best and the hardest. The best part of preaching on Easter is I get to come and stand up here and talk about something great, something good that happens again and again. Easter keeps happening. I get to sit here and help us think about that and live into that. The hardest part is the temptation a preacher feels to try to make it all sound rational, unassailably proved. Ronald Reinhold Niebuhr was um, quite a theologian a generation or so ago. Listen to what he said. He said on Easter Sunday, he said, I like to go to those real liturgical churches where there's Eucharist, a great deal of ritual, and a short sermon. (laughs) He said, I want to go to that kind of church so I won't have to listen to some preacher argue or explain his way through the resurrection. See, a lot of the arguments that preachers have used through the years they just, they don't hold water. There are not a lot of calories in that. Maybe you've heard preachers, you know, just, just equate Easter. You know, it's as natural as springtime. Come on, folks, natural as springtime. You know how it is. You can buy a daffodil dill bulb in the winter, and you look at it, and you say, oh, this is pitiful. This is nothing. But you know, those of you that have experience with bulbs, you put it in the ground, you just sit back and wait. And then one day in spring, it just explodes to the ground, bursting with color. It's wondrous. It's miraculous. But it's spring. It's natural. Resurrection is not natural. Uh, It it just, it cannot be um, computed in a rational kind of sense. You and I know how many funerals have we been to and loved ones we have lost and we we lose a loved one and that casket goes into the ground. We don't come back waiting that they will appear again so we can pick up where we left off. Not this side of the grave. I I am not helped by arguments. Oh, just come on, folks. Resurrection is just as natural as spring. I think the other thing about so many of the preacherly arguments to try to prove resurrection is that, well, they just avoid the fact that this is not a publicly documented event. The crucifixion was, I mean, everybody saw it. The believers, the unbelievers, followers, and the non-followers, you can read about it in the historic annals. This rabbi from Galilee was crucified there at a place called Golgotha. It's there. The resurrection, there's a shift. The life of Jesus, record. The death of Jesus, public record. 
resurrection, there was no public appearance. Jesus didn't come walking through the middle of Jerusalem, waving to everyone, I'm back. He didn't appear at the castle of Pilate or the high court of Caiaphas and say, you want to take another shot at me? Payback time. (laughs) No. But I feel emboldened as a preacher that the resurrection remains in the realm of freedom and faith. There's room for people to say, I'm not so sure. Not so sure about that. To whom did Jesus appear? The same ragtag group of followers that sometimes misunderstood him and disappointed. He came back to them. He came back to us. Jesus being raised from the grave There were no witnesses to that. That was between Jesus and God. They saw him afterwards. They didn't appear to him. He appeared to them. This morning, if you're looking for evidence of the resurrection, don't go shuffling through the history books to find some historical documentation. Don't go playing around with analogies of springtime. Don't even go thinking about there being an empty tomb. The real evidence of resurrection truth is right here in this room. It's it's us. It's Jesus' the risen one's loving presence with those who knew him and followed him and still follow him. There are all kind of testimonies about resurrection. There are accounts in the Bible. There were those that did have a, they saw and experienced the physical reality of Jesus' resurrection. There was that little room there in Jerusalem, you know, he said, see the scars, see the nail prints. There was that beachside breakfast up in Galilee, several other. But you know, it wasn't long, it wasn't long till the witnesses of the resurrection sounded more like us. They didn't have any photographs. They they didn't have any visible moments. They didn't hear an audible voice. But it was still real to them. They believed that Jesus kept coming back among them. Faith doesn't come at the end of proof. Faith is a response to the witness of our experience. And if you ask me, when you start piling up 2,000 years of experience, that's as strong as the writ of course. As long as we experience him, as long as others experience him through us, he is risen indeed. He's risen indeed. We've been going through Lent, these I am statements from John. And and when we stood up here, you know, Patrick and Luke and I, One thing we said about the Gospel of John, that John loves the present tense. That's why he uses the I am. Because he didn't want to just talk about Jesus that was in the frame of history. He wanted to talk about the risen one that breaks out of that frame and is forever the I am. He wanted you to know that you could come to know the same Jesus he had come to know. You could experience the one that he had experienced. Where did the last one, I am the resurrection and life, where do we find that? Oh, it's back in the 11th chapter of John. Lazarus has died. Jesus comes to be with Mary and Martha. And what does he say? I am. (laughs) 
I am here, I am now, I am the resurrection and the life. I think John wants you to hear it like that this morning. Not in some other world, not in some other time, right here, right now, still steps out of the frame of history. The I am, he can speak to you at times through your own voice. He may appear to someone else through you. Isn't that something? In the apocryphal gospel of John, Jesus is depicted as saying, cleave, break any piece of wood, and I just might be there. Pick up any stone, and you might find me there. In other words, there's no place or moment so threadbare that he cannot be found. Can I say anything more or make it clear about how the risen one appears? I, I want to be real careful and hesitate because I think those appearances come in so many shapes and sizes. But if some of you this morning are wondering if you've had an experience of the risen Christ, I, I would suggest, here's a hint, I think he's often found around those moments where you thought it was all settled, concluded, and over, and it wasn't. You know those RE moments? Renewal. Return, recovery, revival, where the lost are found, where the outsiders are brought in, where the rock is rolled away from the tomb. Not some other world, but right here, right now. He's still coming back. I do hope, before we close the book on Easter this morning, you'll hear not only the the hope for your life, but I hope you'll feel the tug of it, the call to somehow pass this on. Okay. Well, that's the real challenge, isn't it? And we are to take the Easter message and not just bottle it up for our own consumption and our own belief. Every one of us who are baptized in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we're called to be agents of resurrection Easter truth. How do we do that? Oh, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to get on a stump and give a talk. I think, though, we have to do our best to try to embody his living presence in our giving, our living, our serving. It's not good enough for us to just believe in the witness that he was raised. Unless we make that truth real for others unless we become living evidence. Oh, Frederick Nietzsche, oh my goodness, how many times has he been quoted in church and beyond, even though he certainly was not a believer, but he used to love to rattle the cage of the church. And he'd watched all these gloomy Christians around him and of his day. And one day he said, you know, I need to see the followers of Jesus look a little more saved before I'm gonna believe in their savior. Well, I don't think I'm talking to a gloomy group of Christians. I, I think we're a group here at Central. We try to work at being viable living witnesses. Oh, we're never perfect. But every day you and I as people of Central, scattered in our individual lives, but then in our corporate lives together, we witness to something, don't we? And isn't our hope that somewhere along the way, our witness will be so winsome that those people out there, they're wondering, how can these people believe in Easter? They'll see it written all over us, our aliveness that comes from someone who's alive in us.
Now talk about somebody who rattled the cage of the church, Soren Kierkegaard, existentialist philosopher, Danish preacher. The church he was speaking to, he thought had become a state church that had just become moribund in civil religion, just sprinkling holy water on the status quo of the day. No, no abundant sense of uh, boldness in ministry or just radical joy in their lives. And so he told this parable. Some of you said, Rob, when are you going to bring the ducks back around on Easter? Here it comes. <laughs> Soren Kierkegaard's parable of the ducks. And some of you are going to look up Kierkegaard this week, and you're going to read it in his original text and words, and you're going to say, that didn't sound much like that at Central. I admit now, I've chosen a lot of liberties as a southern storyteller. And you're going to hear it a little bit in my version, but it does come from Kierkegaard, the parable of the ducks. It's Duck Sunday in Duck Town. And the ducks wake up and they realize, oh my goodness, it's Sunday. And so they just, first of all, need to get a little something to eat. And they waddle out into the yard and they grub a little bit of worms and feed and seed. And they waddle back into the house and they fluff up their feathers to look their Sunday best. And then they waddle out of their duck houses down the duck lane. They waddle up the steps of the duck church and waddle down the aisle. And they go into the pew and they squat. Well, here you are. <laughs> but it wasn't just any Duck Sunday. It was Easter Duck Sunday. And the organist, where are you, organist, back there? He, the duck organist, he, he just got that, that organ ramped up, and he was really knocking on those low notes, rattling the rivets in the duck church. And then the duck choir master got the duck choir all singing together, coming together in rhythm and voice and just singing their duck best. Didn't they sing their duck best this morning? Right. Oh, but then comes the duck preacher. And he's excited because this is... This is Easter Duck Sunday. And he comes out there and he sees the ducks all out there squatting and he just says, oh ducks, don't you know that we are meant to be more than the grounded birds that we have come? Just waddling about and pecking a little bit of feed and seed here and there. No, we were meant for the great skies. Oh, and now they're getting a little excited. There's a couple of quack quacks from the duck amen corner. One or two ducks even move a wing and there's a feather or so floating up. Oh, and now this is encouraging. They're going back and forth between congregation and preacher. And the preacher says, yes. Why do you think we're here? Because our, our foremother ducks and forefather ducks, they, they've traversed great distances. They crossed oceans and continents to, to be here. We are part of a great migratory species. Oh, ducks, let us soar. And now, oh, there's the flapping, the rings and wings, and one duck actually levitates two or three feet off, off the pew, and there's great excitement. He goes, ducks, let us no longer be grounded birds. Let us mount up and let us soar into the highest heavens. Quack, quack, flap, flap. Great was the excitement. They sing the duck closing hymn. The minister opens and he closes with the duck benediction. 
and then, and then they all waddled home. <laughs> oh, may we not waddle. Did you hear the opening hymn? Soar, soar we now where Christ is led. Folks, we're Easter people. This isn't just about one moment in time. This isn't just something happened a long time ago. It's something that happens again and again. This is to be in our very DNA. It's to be who we are. We can't leave it here. Don't leave it here this morning like you're going to leave your bulletin in the pew. Don't leave it out there at the parking lot. Don't leave it where you go to lunch today. You carry it with you so that we as the people of Central, individually and together, we can people, people who act so indescribably alive, whose love has no limits, whose hope has no end, that the people who need to know about the resurrection, they don't have to be persuaded because we've become the living evidence of it. The risen body of Christ that anyone can see and hear and touch. Not waddling, but soaring, but soaring. Amen. Now, you're going to have an opportunity and I want to tell you, the people at the first service, they, they really responded. We did this last year. I think it's going to become a new tradition. As we're singing the closing hymn, some of you are going to feel moved to come up and be a part of the choir because you're invited to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. And there's music up here, right, Ed? You got, you got music for those? Some of you need this on your resume. <laughs> to have a cup of coffee, to have one moment with the choir of Central. So as we're singing this closing hymn, you come up and take your place and you can be a part of this great closing.
Now as we go back in the day, let us go forth knowing a living Lord is at our elbow, the power beside us is great as any challenge ahead of us. May we go in power and in peace, 